So this guy on the far right hand upper corner, he's going to try to get out of this little parking lot. All right, so what's the easiest way to get out? Just back up into the empty space, right? Turn left, and you're out. So really like a, you might say a two-point turn. You back up, take a left. And, you know, sometimes when you're at ground level, you don't see it, right? I mean, we see it. Seems like this guy should see it. And I'm going to show it to you. There's no, like, accompanying music. But I'm just saying, like, if you had, if you didn't take your blood pressure medicine this morning, you might want to shield your eyes because it might, it's going to be painful to watch this guy try to get out of this parking lot. I think a 27-point turn. Oh, no. Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, uh, what's he doing? Oh, no. You think, yes, he's going to, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Meanwhile, the other guy who tried to get out, he's like, come on, dude. I mean, his forearms have got to work out. And he gets himself jammed in here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. 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 27 point turn. They could have been two. And the reason I'm saying that is, is sometimes to get where you want, to get in the driving lane, you think it might just be, okay, I've got a feeling, I just move in this direction, I'm in the lane. And most of the time, it doesn't work that way. Most of the time, there's some turns in between your sense of what you should be doing or what your vision should be, which is what we're talking about here with Nehemiah, and actually getting in the driving lane. And so I want you to just remember that, that it sometimes takes a lot more turns than you might first imagine. So what we're doing here this semester is we're getting a master's degree in leadership from Nehemiah. Really, this is as good as you can get from any other place. And we started talking about vision. And the way I'm defining vision is this. It's a it's a preferred future. You look out on the future, and whether that's a vision about yourself, hey, I'm looking at myself, and I have a preferred future. I have a vision of something I prefer about myself, about what I do or who I am, uh, or something about your business or something about what you do. I have a, or your family 
or your church, it doesn't matter what it is, you have something in the future that you prefer, and you can get a picture of how it should be or how it could be. That's a vision. And so a lot of times it begins with a concern. Sometimes you have this idea, a Thomas Edison idea, I want to create electricity, but sometimes it, it begins with a concern, and a lot of times that's, I'm calling that a holy discontent. In other words, you see something or you experience something and you say, we, we can't stay this way. We can't stay here. We have to move away from here. Or somebody has to get involved to make something happen. And that's what happens with Nehemiah. He has his holy discontent moment. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, his brothers have come back from Israel. Just in case you don't know the story, the Israelites were disobedient. So an army came in, the Babylonian army came in and took people out of Israel and basically demolished Jerusalem and lots of Israel, and they just took slaves back, Jewish slaves. And Nehemiah is one of these guys. He didn't actually ever live in Jerusalem. He's been born since they've been in slavery. And he's over there, and he, his brother comes back from visiting Jerusalem, and this is what he says. And they said to me, verse 3, the remnant there in which the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And when he hears this, as soon as he heard these words, I sat down, wept, and mourned for days. So he has his holy discontent moment. He just says, I, I can't stand this. And something's got to happen. Now, he doesn't know how he's going to get involved with, with, with it, but that's the beginning of his vision. That's I, Something has to happen. So... Uh, when we've talked about vision, I've tried to talk about it this way, vision for your soul, vision for yourself. Vision for your soul, who you are. Trying to expand your interior life. Vision for yourself, what you're doing. Trying to expand your exterior life. So I think those are two, they're both important. A vision for your soul is more important than a vision for yourself. But what happens with men is they're really good at a vision for themselves. I'd like to get married. I'd like to have kids. I'd like to have this kind of house. I'd, I'd like these kinds of hobbies or toys. I like this kind of career. I'd like to run my own business. What, whatever that is, those are all good things, but they're all external things. That's a vision for yourself. But a lot of times we neglect having a vision for our soul. How am I expanding my interior life? And quite frequently what happens is men think, as I expand my exterior life, my interior life's just going to grow right alongside with it. And the answer to that is, uh, no, it doesn't. You can have a very tiny interior life and a very big exterior life. And so what, what uh, God begins to work on Nehemiah in the very beginning is, Nehemiah, you're going to have a really big exterior life pretty soon, but I need you to expand your interior life first. I need you to, to, to have a bigger understanding of who you are, who I am, before where you go, and that's what we'll be talking about today. So one thing, just as a reminder, getting a vision for your interior or exterior life like getting out of this parking lot. It, it's, it's quite a few more turns than you might first imagine. To get in the right lane, again, sometimes it just works that 
God moves, you know it, and it all works. But more often than not, it's up and back and around and through, and then, oh, okay, here it is. And through that 27-point turn, God gets you into the right lane for whatever reasons. So let me just give you some example. Moses. We studied Moses a couple of years ago. I love Moses. And so Moses has three 40-year periods of, of his life. His first 40 years, he grows up under the leadership of Pharaoh. And he's completely trained on how to lead a nation. So he's going to be a great leader of a nation. And then he has his holy discontent moment. Remember Exodus chapter 2? He goes out and he sees one of the Egyptian soldiers beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And he's a Hebrew, even though he looks like he's part uh, of the Egyptian family. And he has this holy discontent moment. I can't stand this. I can't stand my people getting beaten, which is good. But then what does he do? He kills the soldier, buries him in the sand. Not a great long-term plan. So he has this holy discontent moment, but he's not really ready to lead this nation. So what does God do for Moses? He sends him out in the desert for how long? 40 years. Imagine a 40-year turn. Imagine Moses coming out of the parking lot saying, I want to get in this lane, right? And for 40 years, he's doing this. I mean, that's a long, let's hope, I'm praying I don't have a 40-year turn. But for Moses, he wasn't ready emotionally. Why? Because he was just ready to take matters in his own hands. And, and God's like, Moses, if we're going to do this, it's got to be in my hands. And you've got a good, holy discontent, but you want to make it happen, not you want to work as God makes it happen. Does that make sense? Very easy to do. Say, I've got a right thing. I've just got the wrong plan. And so to get rid of that, it takes 40 years for Moses. Plus, he has to learn how to live in the desert. Why? He's going to lead a nation into a desert. So he might have said, okay, God, here's my holy discontent moment. Let's go out in the desert. And he's like, dude, how do you survive out here? He doesn't have any idea how to live in a desert. He knows how to lead a nation. He doesn't know how to live in a desert. So a couple of things are happening in this 40 years for Moses, learning how to live in a desert, learning how to let God move instead of him move. And then at 80, that's when he gets in the lane. So if you feel like you're 75 and you're not in your lane yet, you got good hope still. Moses didn't get into his lane until he was 80, and then for the next 40 years, he led the people. So you see how that works. I talked to a guy just a couple of weeks ago came by my office, and I just said, how did you get into the lane that God's got you in? And he said, well, I was sitting by myself late one afternoon. I was looking over this city and this situation, and I just thought, this, this, I can't stand this. Something's got to change. And so I, and this is what he said, I whispered a prayer. This is always dangerous little whisper prayers. I whispered a prayer. God, I can't stand this. And if you open doors, I'll have the courage to walk through. Whoa. For four years, not much happened. And he said, you know, I almost forgot about the whisper prayer. 
mean, I knew I had said it, but then, you know, four, three, four years go by, you're thinking, yeah, it's just one of those whispered prayers that just doesn't go anywhere. And then after four years, God starts opening the doors, and he has to have the courage to walk through. And then for 16 years, he's been in this lane trying to work against his holy discontent. So for Moses, it was a 40-year turn. For this guy, four years. I whispered a prayer. I saw something. I knew I had to be involved with it somehow, but I got to let God move. It can't be something I just do. And so it's for four years. For Nehemiah, it's not 40 years. It's not four years. It's four months. He sits down here in chapter 1, verse 4. He starts with his holy discontent. He thinks, I've got to somehow get involved with this. This has got to change, but I don't know how. And the difference, the time between that moment and when he talks to the king in chapter 2 and, and his exterior life begins to grow, that's four months. So my question for us this, this morning, and really the second point, is what are the things that happen in that four months that expand Nehemiah's interior life so he's ready when God expands his exterior life? You got that? So Nehemiah is going to have this giant work project to do, build a wall, and it's going to be a big exterior thing to do. And God's saying, I need, I need you to work on some things on your interior life in these four months, and what are those things? I need you to have a good foundation so when we start building something that everybody can see, it can support that. So this is a pretty helpful little video just uh, mentally. Tower, one world tower, you know that tower in New York City, it replaced the Twin Towers. So it took about 11 years to build. And it took about two whole years just to work on the hole and the foundation. Imagine that. Two years before anything starts getting off the ground. But you're going to build a big, tall building. You better have a pretty good foundation. So this is a little uh, time-lapse video of them building this building. And you'll notice about the first 30 seconds, it's all just this hole. And then the, the video kind of speeds up. And uh, you'll see the tower go up. <laughs>
So two years to work on something you don't see to get to this thing that everybody can see. So that's what we're thinking. We're talking about this hole, this interior life for you. What's the, how, do you how do you get that big so when God's ready to extend your exterior life, you can, you, you, you've got the capacity to hold whatever they, that God wants you to do. So we're going to talk about this and their habits or practices, you might say, the, the, uh, the term that Christians use are spiritual disciplines. So habits or practices, it's not magic. It's not a miracle. It's not like, oh God, just do something right now. It's practice, it's habits, stuff that you and I can do. So when we talk about spiritual disciplines, one of the things that you have to think about is, and the best illustration I have for this is, it's like getting a suntan. So if you say, I'm going to go work on my tan, how much work do you do? I mean, it's not work, is it? I mean, it's just, I just got to go sit in a chair and the work is done by the sun. The only work I have to do is I've got to get myself in front of the sun. Does that make sense? So a spiritual discipline is not, I'm, I'm doing something. I'm, I'm pushing the weight. I'm, I'm getting stronger. It's no, I'm just putting myself in front of the person who changes my complexion. That's a different way of thinking about it. So I'm praying, gosh, I'm getting stuff done. I'm reading my Bible. I'm checking all the boxes like you're on an exercise routine. And you feel like I'm getting it done. And I want to shift that mentality to know I'm doing these things, but the, the person who's changing me is not me. It's God's changing me. I'm just, I'm just praying or fasting or reading the Bible, and I'm sitting in front of the sun who's going to change my complexion. So what we're talking about here this morning is what Nehemiah did. Verse 4, chapter 1. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned. I had my holy discontent moment. And then I was fasting and praying before the Lord, the God of heaven. And then he has his prayer, verse 5, through the rest of the chapter. So first set of spiritual disciplines, fasting and prayer. Now fasting and prayer is a launching pad for all kinds of things in the Bible. And I could list 20. Let me just list two. That fasting and prayer became the, the, the expanding interior life so an exterior thing could launch. First of all, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus gets baptized. And just before his three-year ministry, what happens for 40 days? Fasting and prayer. So if Jesus needs fasting and prayer to launch the kingdom of God, then you and I are going to need fasting and prayer. Acts chapter 13, there's a small group of men that are meeting in a church, in a church place called Antioch, and, the, and the, the, uh, the, the message of Christianity hadn't really broken the bounds of Israel. And in this fasting and prayer meeting, Acts 13... The Holy Spirit moves and says, I need Barnabas and Paul to start a worldwide missionary movement of planting churches. So now we're part of that. We're part of this tower that they started 2,000 years ago. But it started by a group of people praying and fasting. Now, Esther, you know, for such a time as this, fasting and prayer. I mean, you could just go every story, fasting and prayer. 
So fasting and prayer is one of those key things. Now, two things this accomplishes. One, it takes you out of the center. If you're fasting in prayer, in, in prayer, you're not in the center anymore. You're like, God, I would like to be in the center, but, I, but, but because I'm spending time praying and fasting, I'm, I'm receptive to you doing something. Because it, when you have that holy discontent moment, you might move automatically, and that might not be the best move, like Moses. He had the right holy discontent moment, but he moved on his own energy and he needed to step back and say, God, I, I've got this holy discontent moment. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how you want me involved. So I'm going to fast in prayer, and I'm going to let you move, and you be the tip of the spear, and I'm just going to follow. So your first thoughts might not be right. And, and a lot of times when you have that holy discontent moment, you're sure you're right. And again, you might be right, but you just have a wrong plan. So we don't know Nehemiah. He, had, he just has this discontent. I don't think he thinks in the first five minutes, I'm going to be the person who builds the wall. I mean, he just, I'm disturbed. I'm frustrated. I don't know how to involve myself. So I'm stepping back and I'm letting God be the guide. And the second very critical thing it does is it helps you exercise this muscle that you must have as a leader. It's the no muscle. Let's just say that together. No, no. It's very, it's very easy, isn't it? Put your tongue on the top of your mouth. You know, no. But when you're fasting for a day, how often do you have to say no to yourself? Well, for me, quite a few times during that day. Hey, I'm feeling hungry. If I'm going to fast for a day, I'm starving in the middle of the night, right? Because when I wake up, I'm starving. I've got to eat. No, not today. And then I get busy and blah, 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 but then somewhere, you know, I see a pizza commercial. Oh, no, no. I just don't watch television because when I watch television when I'm fasting, every commercial is a food commercial. But you've got to exercise the no muscle, and fasting helps you exercise that no muscle. When you're praying, if you spend 30 minutes praying in the morning, you have to exercise the no muscle, do you not? No, I'm not going to sleep 30 minutes more. No, I'm not going to get up and immediately get to work. So you have to exercise the no muscle if you really want to expand your interior life. And so fasting helps you do that. One thing that we're going to see in this book of Nehemiah is how many times he's going to have to say no. He's going to have to say no to himself. He's going to have to say no to the people that he's trying to help. And he's going to have to say no to his enemies. But he's not going to be able to say no on the spot. He's going to have to be trained to say no. So a lot of times we get on the spot and we don't have the capacity to say no. Because we haven't trained ourselves to say no. Now think about just a regular businessman. How often do you have to say no? No to working all the time. No to not working enough. No to laziness. No to unethical practices. Hey, this is the way, you know, hey, this, we do it this way. Yeah, but it's not right. Well, I mean, it's kind of an industry standard. No, I mean, I can't do it that way. No to being dishonest. 
No to cutting corners. No to sexual conversations. Right? You're with your friends who are just in, your, your guy friends, they're in that mode. Yeah, guys, you know, I'm not about that. Or you're in the office with females. You don't know. No to clients. Hey, can you do this? Th- I know it's not quite right, Ken, but you, can you do it? And, and hey, I'm a big client. No. If you don't exercise no interiorly, you're not going to be able to exercise no exteriorly. So fasting and prayer helps build that muscle so that when you have to say no to a tough client who might take his business elsewhere or no to some appetite that you have that you need to say no to, if you haven't exercised that, you're not going to be able to do it on the spot. It's like these football coaches over here. Why do they practice? Why do they just do the same thing? Guys, we're doing the same thing every time. Why? Because when, when we get in the game and the pressure's on, I need you just to do it automatically. I don't need you to be thinking about it. I just need you to come off the ball and do this every time. But if you don't practice saying no, when you need to come off the ball and say no, you can't do it. You know the right thing to do, but you don't have the capacity to do it because you haven't expanded your interior life to carry the weight of the exterior decision that you have to make. So prayer and fasting. I'm going to send you several articles because probably a lot of you are like fasting. I mean, I've never done that or what in the world. And so it's be a whole lesson just to talk about it. And I don't want to take a whole lesson and you can read about it, but it might be a meal, might be two meals, might be a day, might two, two days, whatever you want to do. But I would just say this needs to be the, a regular part of your spiritual life to increase your interior capacity, prayer and fasting. Second thing, and last thing, uh, journaling, developing a plan, getting a strategy. Now, how do we know that Nehemiah wrote stuff down? I mean, it doesn't say, and Nehemiah wrote stuff down. Well, when we read to chapter 2, when the king makes this incredible request, what do you want me to do? Nehemiah doesn't start drooling on himself. He, you can read it in about three verses. I need this, 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 I need this. He just rips it off. Why? Because he's been writing exactly what he thinks needs to happen over and over again. How many wads of paper are in the corner of Nehemiah's room? Quite a few, right? I think this, I think this. Uh, no, that's not a good plan. Lord, I'm praying and fasting. Okay, this, this, this. I mean, who knows? But when the time comes, he's got it exactly down. He knows exactly what he wants. And writing creates an exactness. Thinking is helpful. you got to think to be able to write. But when you write it down, it becomes, this is, this is a concrete thing. And so if you're thinking to yourself, I'm in a parking lot, interior or exterior, right? I'm in the middle of a of a transition from one career to another. I know I'm not supposed to stay here. I'm really not sure what kind of door God's opening. Or I'm really not a good keeper of my soul. I look great exterior. I'm a piece of crap interior. And I, I, don't, I gotta start somewhere, right? You're, you're in one of those two places or you have been or will be. You got to start just having the practice. Doesn't have to be a page every night, could just be a couple of sentences. Just I'm right. God's 
moving. I'm reading the Bible. I'm praying, whispering prayers. God, just, just take this over time. Might be four months, might be four years. What, what, how are you moving? I'm writing this down. I thought that was it back then. Now I know it's not it. It's, it must be this. So that when God's ready to move, you, you've got an exact plan. There's a great uh, quote. Sam Kennedy actually found this yesterday for me. Uh, is it on the um, screen, Matt? Here's the quote. Francis Bacon. Reading makes a man full. Conversation makes a man ready. And writing makes a, an exact man. Exact meaning he uses language with precision, which is the opposite of a fog. Leaders that lead with fog are doing a disservice to their organization. They're going to drive their boat into an iceberg. Great visual. But leaders whose mind is clear, who can express their ideas with precision and clarity, steer the ship in a wonderful, lucid air of truth and openness. So I count journaling one of the most important habits in my life. So you're leading your family. You're leading a business. You're leading a small group. You're whatever you are. You're leading yourself. You want some precision on that, especially if you're leading other people. You don't want to lead your family in a fog. Hey, we're just making this up as we go. Hey, I wouldn't do that if you had a family. If I have a boy and a girl, I got three girls, or I got two boys, whatever it is, hey, there's, I got to have a plan. Now, it, it shapes and adjusts and all that stuff, but I got to write down what do I want these young men, this, this boy or this young girl to grow up to be. I got to have some precision. All right, so we're going to have these questions here. First of all, uh-oh, Matt, I lost my slide on the questions. In one sentence or two, what's the current condition of your interior life? So you could, you could take up the whole time in your group and talk about it. We don't want you to do that. We want you to say in a sentence or two, if I had to describe my interior life, this is what it looked like. What are habits or practices you already use? You might say, I, don't, I don't really don't use any, or I use this, but it's not very good, or I use this and it's been helpful. How about prayer, fasting, or journaling? Do you do that? And where do you need to exercise the no muscle in your life? All right, ready, break. You got about 12 minutes.